In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heaven is boring, and hell is exciting. So if um, you are to talk about heaven and hell, most people are intrigued to hear about the, 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 the aspects of hell. Um, Dante, oh, I don't know his last name, Aliardi or something, the, the Italian literary master, wrote the Divine Comedy, the Divine Comedy. And there's three phases where there's the inferno, hell, and then there's, because he was a Catholic, there's purgatory, and then there was uh, paradise, which is heaven. And everyone's favorite part of the book is the inferno. And and his experience as his character goes through, I, I don't remember how many rings, things like nine rings of hell. And I remember, like, I read that. Did I read the others? No, I did not read the others. <laughs> um, and we... Um, Often, I think there's a bad vision of heaven out there of a, it's it's a picture perfect place. It's placid. It's like a lake completely smooth and it drives us nuts that it's just going to be perfect forever and nothing's going like, you just want to throw a rock in that lake. You just want to mess something up just to see something move. Um, Cotton candy, <laughs> cotton candy clouds and naked cherubs and strumming harps and streets of gold. There's a lot of images that come with heaven. And this, this is the mentality of many Christians and especially those outside the church. Heaven's a very vague place and it has been really stupefied. Um, here's, here's, I just, I did not go into a deep search. I just went on Reddit and said, what do people think about heaven? And it, uh, these are some of the two first things I read, so I'm just going to paste these here. These are not believers, but um, ask yourself if you ever asked these questions before. One person said, streets paved with gold? Everyone gets their own mansion? Walking and talking with Jesus every day? I won't get to live with my family, will I? Because we'll all have our own mansions. Heaven sounds lonely and awful. The biggest, another one, the biggest mistake in the heaven concept is that there's no negative or bad things in heaven. Whereas in life, you need that balancing force. You need bad things to realize good things. If you have, if all you have is good things, there are no good things. If you don't have dark, there is no light. You need hunger, desire, and fear to make, to drive the dynamic of life to want to make some changes and to have survival instinct. Without them, there would be no life as we know it. Pretty boring indeed. Hell is already sounding better, right? I'm not saying I agree with these views, but I can resonate with these views. Um, If we're honest, we've experienced some of these same fears of what do we do forever and ever, uh, what is heaven like? Uh, like, so, you know, I grew up 
all the time hearing God's preparing mansions for us. So you're going to have your own place. And then they're like, just imagine, kids, like, what is going to be like? Like, what do you want to be there? Like, I want, because I was really into guitars. Then it's like, I want, like all the Taylor guitars that I want and, and these electric guitars. Like, like yeah, it's probably going to be there. Like, your bed is probably going to be made out of beautiful Taylor guitar wood. And it's going to have that same smell. And you're, like, it's like, you're just like thinking about it, like, wow. And we're left with either um, this vision of heaven, that it's going to be this endless, basically hedonism, whatever you want, only it's just without sin. And then at some point, you're going to realize, like, well, at what point is this too much? And is this going to get old? Or you're left with the other way that it's been talked about many times is that um, you'll be praising and worshiping God forever and ever. But that's never clarified. So what people are left with left with is um, an infinite worship or church service. And that just makes a lot of us roll our eyes and think, oh, my goodness. Um, now... In this series of greater expectations, I seek to give us greater expectations about heaven. Because if this is our starting point, heaven help us. No pun intended, I guess, but um, we need help. And here's why. If we have low expectations of heaven, then we're also going to have low expectations of hell. And if we have low expectations of both, then we will have a low level of differentiation between the two. If there's no great gap between them, because our expectations for them are just so like, whatever. Like this one guy was saying, hell's already sounding better because it's exciting. You can do things and there's problems and there's people to overcome and whatever. Like there's meanness. Like if we're, if we don't have the right vision of these, our expectations for them are dumbed and then we end up saying, what's really the difference? It's kind of like a preference. How many of you have ever heard the unbelievers say, well, at least I'll party with my friends in hell? That's because the vision of heaven is so low that hell looks exciting. Because at least it's something I can relate to. It's something I'm already in the midst of. I don't need to go into any of that. Too much. Um, so... Um, what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about heaven, um, and a little bit of hell. Um, I want to talk about heaven and I want to talk about it in the way the Bible talks about it, not in the way that folklore talks about it. Cause what you guys just heard from those comments and some of the things that I was sharing, I've heard growing up, that's folklore. Like it's not a lot of biblical support, uh, to those things. So, um, does the Bible actually tell us what heaven's like? It's ambiguous. Um, does the Bible actually tell us what hell is like? Mm, yeah, no, it gives us an analogy, but it doesn't actually describe that place because that place doesn't actually exist yet. I know that's going to sound weird, but I'll show you in a minute, okay? Um, so the Bible does give us visions of God's plan. And if we are to take visions of this plan and the way he weaves it through the narrative of the scriptures, we can take an educated guess at where it's going, right? If you have a trend on a graph, you can, you can usually follow that curve to its finality. It might not be exactly right, but you get the idea of where that trend is going. That's what we want to do. Um, I, I cannot be exhaustive. It would take 
I, I realize as I was putting this together, like we sh- we could just have a series on heaven, and maybe that's down the road. Who knows? But uh, I'm just gonna kind of breeze over some things, and then um, yeah, hopefully it just we're there before we end. That'd be good. Um, I'll just breeze over some things because here's my goal. At the end of this, I want to just um, because it's really confusing for people, especially when I present what I'm about to present. Like suddenly something in your mind's like, whoa, I no longer have categories for that. So I want to have questions and a little space for that at the end, if that's necessary. So if you have questions, you're allowed to ask them just when I'm done, because I want all the stitches I'm putting together to move without us rending it asunder. So we'll go through it, and then anything you want to jot down, feel free to ask afterward, and we'll see where that goes, as long as it's related. It would be totally fine. Make sense? So um, here are four. I'm going to give you guys four um, corrections to our weak expectation of heaven so that we can have a greater expectation of what God is going to do. Okay, so number one, the intermediate heaven is not the eternal heaven. The intermediate heaven is not the eternal heaven. What do we mean by that? Intermediate means temporary or in between things. It's like You want to get to New York, but your flight stops in Chicago, which is a terrible airport. Um, That's a layover, right? Chicago is your intermediate stop. It is not your destination. It's a stop on the way. So the eternal heaven does not actually, no one's going there right now. No one's there yet. What we have at present is an intermediate heaven. It's a layover place. Um, and the best way to describe this is I'm going to have to use this whiteboard to show you. Otherwise, it's not going to make sense with words. <laughs> um, so let's we'll start with this. Heaven is not a unique place or location. You cannot point and say that's where heaven is. We generally say up because God is a king and kings are ascended. They're above their subjects. That's the only reason we use the word up. Up doesn't make sense if you think about it, because if you're in China, it's a totally different direction. So there really is no certain location or unique specific spot in the cosmos where heaven is. Heaven is rather a realm. It's a sphere in which God dwells and reigns. So wherever he is indwelling and reigning without resistance, that is heaven. So sometimes that is on earth and sometimes that's somewhere off the earth. Sometimes it's in a very concealed place like the Holy of Holies. And sometimes it breaks out upon people in their hearts. That's what heaven is. It's a, it's, it's, if you want to call it a place, it's the space where God indwells and reigns. But it hasn't looked the same throughout all of the Bible. So let's start, as we should, at the very beginning. Eden. Uh, I'm going to use the color blue for sky, heaven, because we associate it that way, and green for earth, because plants. All right? So Eden was the dwelling place of both heaven and earth. Um, Eden it was what it was. Not because God made it really cool and because God made things like that we would like. I mean, he did all that, yes. But what made Eden a place of delight, which is what Eden means, is because it was earth and heaven intertwined. There was no separation between the two. God walked with humanity. 
That's what made Eden what it was. Heaven was where humans were. It was in the garden. However, uh, the earth side of this went through a fall. It fell. And no longer did heaven and earth dwell together. They were separated uh, because of human folly. So the earth then lived in this space that we call the Bible, so we therefore call death. Death appears in the Bible frequently, but death also has its own sphere. It has its um, own place of influence, and it's sin. Sin is where death has, it's like a realm in which death rules us. Uh, And then there is, um, something happens in this separation from heaven when humans die in this period of the um, Old Testament, humans went to a specific place called Sheol in your Old Testament and Hades in the Greek. So um, you've probably seen this in your Bible, Sheol and Hades. Actually, if your Bible ever says hell, whether you're in the Psalms or in the New Testament, there is actually no word hell in the Bible. Hell is usually either Sheol or Hades. Hell is simply referring to the place of the dead. There's one other word but that's not for tonight at all. It's Gehenna, and it was a valley outside of Jerusalem, which became an illustration of what hell will be like. Um, but yeah, there is no actual like hell the way we use the word. Uh, there's lake of fire. That's usually what people think of when they think of hell. It's lake of fire. But if you read Revelation, the lake of fire is totally in the future. It is not yet a thing, if I can say that to everyone's dismay, especially my wife's. Um, so that's what happens, right? When we are just earth, no heaven, then you just die here. And you, 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 Shul and Hades is our alternative. How, um, and then during this time, we have what we are calling the intermediate heaven. Um, the Bible seems to call this intermediate heaven paradise. So notice that this is no longer Eden. This paradise is no longer connected to the earth. It's therefore an immaterial, unsubstantial realm in which the human body doesn't go. So this is why, like, you die. Um, Now, this paradise was not accessible to anyone except prophets through visions in the Old Testament. Prophets and visions saw it, but didn't actually go there. Um, So what happens in the New Testament is, oh, and you guys know Jesus says this in in the Gospels, today you'll be with me in paradise uh jesus comes he leaves paradise he leaves heaven and he comes down and he dies on the cross and through the cross he enters into shul hades death he actually goes all the way into that through the cross so that he can take those who are dead and bring them finally now the dead can actually go to paradise when they die Okay, so the righteous, because Christ came and broke the gates of Sheol and Hades, the righteous can go with him up to paradise. So that's his incarnation, death, and resurrection cycle. Um, So this is where Paul now says, um, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am torn between the two. If I should stay with you, minister, or go and be at home with the Lord. Uh, Also in 2 Corinthians, he says to be absent from the body is to be 
present with the Lord. That wasn't always the case until Christ came and through him has enabled earth to touch heaven in a way. But they're still separate. You're not embodied as far as we know. You're not embodied in paradise. Your literal body is buried in the ground. Okay? So what happens to um, your parents when they die? What happened to Gus when he died a couple years ago? Um, What happened to them? Where are they? They are in paradise. This is not the eternal heaven. It's the intermediate heaven. Okay? Um, So... um, Then what happens, this is future. Sometime the end of our time, there is going to be a general resurrection. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And when we're raised from the dead, now there's going to be a merging of heaven and earth once again. Uh, there'll be more complicated things, like there will be a judgment time. The resurrection will bring all people before God. And at that moment, their, uh, if you want to call it destiny, if you want to call it experience, whatever, their eternity is determined, okay? But to simplify it for now, we will say this, that from this moment now, um, we have what Revelation 21 calls the new the new heaven and earth, and it is intentionally described, if you read it carefully, very similarly to the Garden of Eden, because we have come back, and earth and heaven are now together. So you look at Revelation 21 verses... um, Well, actually, we'll get to that in a second. So, okay, that's what I wanted to start off with, is... The eternal heaven is not this paradise. So when we talk about they went to heaven, what heaven are we talking about? We're talking about something that's temporary. We are not talking about our future destination. So the dead in Christ are now in their layover. Fortunately, it's a lot better than Chicago. But they are in their waiting time. They are yearning for the return of Christ to the same degree we are. Obviously, we suffer more, but there is all of creation, and they are yearning. So we only know of this. Now, heaven and earth do touch in Christ. We get experiences that, like the temple had the Holy of Holies. We, uh, the Hebrews makes it very clear that when we receive communion and we rip the bread, it's the ripping of the flesh of Christ, which is the ripping of the veil, which is his way of bringing us into communion with him, which is the Holy of Holies. The Christian gets to have the presence of God, heaven, dwelling within them. And that's why we've gone through the other sermons of like theosis and sin and talked about why these things matter and they must be developed is we get to have more of that intertwining, okay? So first clarity is that um, when we talk about like up in the clouds, I mean, if it's even biblical, you're, you're thinking of paradise, So that leads us to point number two, which flows right from this, is that heaven, the new heaven and earth, is a physical reality. It's a physical reality. Um, Put it better is that it is a, here's, here's the way I like to say it, a spiritualized matter. Spiritualized matter. So we don't even know how to experience this. Because you have materialism. Physical stuff, 
It's not like the spiritual realm is just kind of inhabiting it and it's the same. No, something happens in which the spiritual realm infuses the physical realm so that the physical is lifted to its highest capacity. It's still physical, but it's spiritualized. And you can, the best way to even think of this is something like what's happening to us in Christ as we're becoming new creations and will continually become more like his divine nature. That is something based on that pattern. You can see possibly the pattern of the physical uh, becoming lifted and elevated to a higher form because there's an infusion and interweaving. Heaven is physical. So Revelation 21, uh, you guys probably read this before. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John sees it coming down. There's a merging of the two realms, okay? Um, I said heaven will be more than physical. It's it's spirit-infused matter. Uh, Romans 8 verse 18 talks about the yearning of creation. So listen to the, the, the creation itself is yearning for this. He says this, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not just talking about your internal glorification. He's talking about literal. Because he then says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, probably Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Recap, what Paul said is, creation is in bondage and it's awaiting its freedom when Christ comes and glorifies us. So creation is in a lesser form. What you know as matter and physical is not its highest potential. There is something holding it back and it wants release to become what it once was or will yet become. Um, you guys know this. Like when you see someone who's really ill um, you or even near death, you can say they are but a shadow of what they once were. You remember what they used to look like in their youth and vigor, and now they look like this, just a shadow of it. Um, we can say that the earth is a shadow of what it will be. We don't know what the physical world will look like or be experienced like because this is just a shadow. And C.S. Lewis beautifully captures this in um, the Chronicles of Narnia when they refer to what they refer to as the shadow lands. Like the beauty of this world are just shadow lands compared to the reality to come. Um, So that's what we mean by a spiritualized matter. Uh, One more example of this is... um, Jesus in his resurrected body. Remember in John 20, the disciples are all huddled in the room and they've got the doors bolted and the windows shuttered. Doesn't say that, but I made the window part up. But they're basically hiding out, right? No one's going to come in and get us. And then Jesus just appears twice in John 20. It makes it specifically clear the doors were locked, yet Jesus was there. Um, So we don't know if he like, you know, 
um, apparates or something, or if he instead walks through the doors. Um, but here's how I comprehend it is that Jesus in his physical body is the infusion of the spiritual and the physical, which makes him more real, more weighty, more physical than the world that we understand so that he can pass through this existence like it's thin air because that which is more real can just pass right through. Like that door was nothing to him. I walk into that door, well, you've all stubbed your toe. And you know what goes through your mind or your mouth when that happens. Um, so that's number two, that the uh, heaven will be spiritualized matter. So that's over here, the new heaven and new earth. Um, number three, heaven will be actively ruled by humans. So... People have this concept of like, you'll just kind of be enjoying yourself forever is totally false. We will have responsibilities and government and commissions. We will be given tasks. Now, it's not going to be futile because Adam was told by the sweat of your brow you're going to eat. And that's where we don't like work. It's like so much work to get so little. But this will be the fulfilling, satisfying work in which we're probably tasked with not just the, not just spiritualized matter, but the spiritualization of matter. Like, what if heaven, notice what if, what if heaven is the process of bringing the created realm more and more to its fullest potential, and that there is, like for the human, there's no limit to the growth that it can have in the infinite, eternal nature of God. And that part of our job is to bring the potentials of what God creates and to glorify him with it, with all of our creativity and our ability to rule that which he gives us. And that's what we're doing. We're not just stabbing in the dark here. Adam and Eve were created and it was told them part of being in the image of God was that they were to have dominion over the earth. And then God tells them in Genesis 1 28 that they're to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They had rulership. And then we read in the Bible like Rome, uh, Revelation few times in Revelation, but like really clearly in Revelation 5 verse 10, there's a song that heaven sings in which it says, you Christ redeemed them so that they may rule over the earth. So there's this task that we'll have. Um, what your task will be, this is total conjecture, but it is based upon the parables of Jesus where he talks about the master went to a faraway city and gave his servants certain portions, right? So one parable says like minas, another says talents. Um, but then he comes back and rewards the ones who did with what he gave them well. They did well with it. They exponentially multiplied it. And the ones that did nothing were banished. Um, and in Luke's parable, I think it's Luke 19, um, Jesus takes the mina from the man who did nothing with it and gives it to him that has 10 cities. And by the way, it says, give him cities. Like he's like a governor of stuff. And it leaves one to wonder, is Jesus like indicating like what his faithful followers will get to do? Is there a measure of rulership they receive based upon their faithfulness here on earth? We're only left to ask questions. But when you connect the dots with the Garden of Eden and man's commission and things Jesus hints at and revelations talk about ruling with Christ, we can only use the imagination. Um, 
So, number four. So, recap. Number one, to clarify what heaven is. The intermediate heaven is not the eternal heaven. The eternal heaven is really exciting. The intermediate one is, we don't really know. (laughs) Doesn't talk much about it. Um, The second one is heaven is spiritualized matter. So, it will be physical, but it will be physical in a fully different way. Number three is that heaven will be actively ruled by humans. And maybe that's part of what we'll be doing is the spiritualization of the physical, um, bringing it to its highest form. And then finally, number four is heaven is the satisfaction of our greatest expectations and desires. Heaven is the satisfaction of our greatest expectations and desires. So when heaven returns to earth, like you see in the new heaven and new earth, then God's presence will infuse all of creation. There will be nowhere to hide from God. He will, we will be, in other words, it's a giant holy of holies. Now, little footnote, um, in Revelation 21, when John measures the holy of holies, um, it's measured out as a cube. Same height, same length, same width. And the only other cube in the Bible is the holy of holies, in which when it's constructed, it's measured out as a cube. Obviously, the New Jerusalem cube is massively bigger than the holy of holies in the temple. Um but maybe, and I'm, I'm throwing just like, this is not conclusive to me, but it seems to indicate that to John, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth is a holy of holies. Like there is no more division between the unholy and the holy. There's the holy of holies. God's presence, his reign infuses all of creation for both Habakkuk and Isaiah prophesied that the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Water covers a hundred percent of the sea. So the glory of the knowledge of the Lord will cover all the earth. The earth itself will be the holy of holies. That also begs the question of what's beyond. I mean, you know, the Bible doesn't go beyond that. So we'll just stay there. We get to live in the Holy of Holies. You can't escape the presence of God. Now, that's really good news for the Christian. That's really bad news for God haters. It's also really bad news if you don't hate God, but you love sin more than God. Because when God's presence infuses creation, it means that there is no more sin. So if you've lived your entire life desiring sin, remember we said heaven is the satisfaction of our greatest expectations and desires. If your greatest expectation and desire has been God, hooray, heaven is good news. But if your greatest expectation and satisfaction was in sin, what is heaven to you but hell? If you want to flip the script a little bit, then hell is, conversely, hell is the deprivation, not the satisfaction, but the deprivation of our greatest expectations and desires. So if, if God covers everything, what is left for the sinner? Here's how John of Damascus, you might remember our 8th century, right around there, um, 
father is the last of the fathers. Um, so he's like writing the summation of all of the theology at that time. He says this. Uh, he says, the righteous desire God and always have him to rejoice in because he's everywhere. You, you have what you expected and wanted. While sinners uh, desire sin, though they do not have the material means to sin. They are punished without any consolation. For what is hell but the deprivation of that which is exceedingly desired by someone? You want something so bad and cannot have it. Do you remember the um, story of the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man was in the place burning. All he wanted was a drop of water to cool his tongue. And he couldn't even have that. Um... Now imagine this, like, imagine this to all the things you live for and can no longer have, and you're just going to desire that forever because that's what you've trained your heart to desire, and now it's gone. And that which you always ran from is all around. What do you do? Where do you go? Um, this, I understand, is painting a very interesting picture of hell. Because we tend to think of a split cosmos where heaven is up and hell is down. But this is implying that like heaven, hell is not a location. It's a sphere. Um, And we don't know. We just can't know. We can't know. Here's the problem. The problem is, if hell is over there, and our classic definition, which is not actually in the Bible, the classic definition, though, is that hell is the separation from God. How are creatures separated from the omnipresent God? Um, Now, we can say, of course, that God can do anything, and of course, that's the loophole, right? Um, Or God is present, and therefore, he's the active tormentor of those who are suffering in hell. Um, these raise really troubling questions to me. Um, another way of looking at it instead is that all humans are resurrected in the presence of God. All of creation becomes his holy of holies. And it's a delight to those who wanted him and it's torment to those who didn't. Not because God is tormenting them saying, ha, 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 no, I got them. He isn't sending demons to stab them and pierce them and, and to tickle their feet with scorpions and all the clever things that Dante had in his book of the Inferno. Like, he is not the inventor of these things, nor are the demons of the devils. They are in this situation too. All of creation is infused with the presence and glory of God, and they torment themselves because they've hated him. Think about just like the few moments you go to a matinee and you're in the dark theater and then you walk outside with all of this terribly bright concrete we pave everything with and the sun's bouncing off of it and your eyes are like, ah, take my hand, wife, because I cannot find the car. Like, you know the pain of that, right? Well, imagine that you've lived your entire life in darkness. You've, you've, you've sinned and John, we've, we, we prayed earlier how John says, if we walk in sin, we're walking in darkness. You've lived your whole life in a hole and all of a sudden, bam, the sun comes. How do you deal with that? It's torment to you. Not that God's tormenting. It's his love emanating to all of creation, but that love that love is torment to those who don't want it and those who want it 
receive it. But it's the same love. God isn't re- responding one way to some people, another way to other people. He's there. And his creatures either rejoice or they try to run as far as they can from him. Which could be how we talk about like the lake of fire being like a place. Like all of them are running away from him. They congregate together to try to hide from the one whose glory penetrates every fiber of the universe. I don't know. I'm throwing out visions and ideas and conjectures and illustrating from theology and scripture and just what a thought. Um, But the good news for us is that if you have made a life of desiring God, you will finally see, taste, and know the one who has been relatively dark to us all this time because we haven't been able to know him enough. So I want to close like this. What if you die and you find yourself in a room with two doors? Neither door is labeled. And you're given the choice, which door will you go through? Whichever you go through, there's no coming out of it. You're going into that door. Remember, they're not labeled. There's no indication of what is what. You are permitted to open the door and look in. But as soon as you cross the threshold, you've made your choice. So you look in one door and you see a certain way of life, a certain set of things to uh, enjoy or hate, whatever it is, and then you open the other door, and the same thing. But it's the opposite, like a totally different way of life, different set of things to pursue. What door are you going to choose? Like, there's no manual to say this one is the good one; it's the right one for you to choose. There's just two doors with two very different ways of living. Which one will you choose? Well, actually, this is not a philosophical question at all because you're not going to sit there and ration through this. No one. You, the, the point is not, well, how do I choose the right one? You're going to know the minute you open the door that that's the right one. Why? Because behind that door is everything you've trained your heart to desire. And you will choose that which you love. I say that because we need to understand That the reason the church exists and the reason we have worship, the reason we have scriptures, the reason we have the Holy Spirit leading us and Christ bringing us into communion with himself, the reason we want to grow in this process of theosis, the reason we want to run from sin like the devil itself is not because God's mad at us for sinning, but because it is hurting us. Like The reason we've talked about all these things is because at the end of our lives, you will want what you have taught yourself to desire. It doesn't matter if someone calls it heaven or hell. You will find yourself gravitating toward what you love. We want to be in the practice of opening the door to Christ every single day. That's what Revelation 3 verse 20 tells us. You guys know this passage very well. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. By the way, this is the very end of him addressing all seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. So it's kind of like the sum, the call to action for the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you open that door and love Christ? Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us, for you are good and you love mankind. Amen.